Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Bruce Douglas podcast. I got a wonderful guest here today, good friend of mine, Tim Johnson. Thank you, Bruce. It's good to be on your podcast. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. Uh, would you uh, like to give me a rundown of what, what it is that you do? Well, I have been for the last 37 years the executive director of a nonprofit that does leadership training mostly for church leaders uh, around Minnesota and in the last 18 years also on the continent of Africa uh, in nine different countries. But we do uh, training conferences, um, consultations with individual churches, networks with uh, church leaders, and a lot of personal one-on-one mentoring. And that the mentoring piece is something that's grown a lot in my own experience, especially through this year of COVID, uh, where some of our formal meetings were not taking place. Uh, but the whole overall mission of the Minnesota Church Ministries Association is to help churches build a generation of confident leaders and teachers. So that's what I am about professionally. Wow, you knocked it right out of the park there. <laughs> uh, and, and how old are you? I'm a young 66. All right, all right. I'd like to hear it. Um, now, you mentioned uh, training and what, what exactly kind of goes on with the training. Well, uh, originally the organization was called the Minnesota Sunday School Association, and it was formed back in 1953 as a way to train Sunday school teachers and organizers in churches. Uh, and as time went on, the focus of it went beyond that much more broadly than just uh, Sunday school programming, but the entire ministry of the church. So our training really is continuing education. It's, it doesn't produce a, a degree like you might get at a seminary or a Bible school, but uh, it is just to help people who are already involved in leadership positions and responsibility in the church to do their work more effectively. Mm -hmm. So we train people on how to work with people, how to uh, teach lessons and preach sermons, how to uh, organize activities and and execute them, how to market things, uh, all the whole range of of issues. And also, we have to tangle with uh, sociological issues and trends of the day, too, so Mm -hmm. people understand the general public and the ones that we're trying to reach out to, uh, what they're going through as well. So all of that is part of the the training regimen that we develop, and that comes in many different forms. Yeah. Uh, many times, one day or half day conferences. Um, otherwise, sometimes something as simple as a, a luncheon where you gather people for a speaker to consider a particular topic. Hmm or a pastor's book club where we read a book together over a two or three month period and and discuss the issues in it. So we're working all those angles both here and overseas. Very cool. Uh, Now is this something that you uh, would think you'd be doing at a young age? Well I didn't have uh, that as my initial um, impulse. (laughs) I, I trained originally to be a school teacher. I have a history secondary education um, degree from Trinity International University and outside of Chicago. But uh, when I got out of school, back in the day, long before you were even a gleam in your father's (laughs) eye in 1977, 
the glut, there was a glut of teachers on the market, and so I f had a hard time finding a job. And even though I, I uh, applied to about 65 different school districts, I didn't uh, find any jobs available. Mm -hmm. And so I tried a couple of years, two and a half years really, of substitute teaching and tutoring and some other odd jobs and whatever just to scrape money together. Uh, but it was at that time when I, I got involved in a church in downtown Minneapolis, which introduced me to church work as a volunteer. Hmm. And uh, one thing led to another. We had, uh, in that particular church, a small group of young adults, but we began to develop a young adult class and program and grew from 5 to 10 to 20 to 30 to 40. And then the pastor of the church said, hey, would you like to join the staff? Be my right-hand man. And I said, well, I'd, I'd be willing to try that out. So I went through that open door hmm. and for four years served uh, on a, as a pastoral staff member at, at Central Free Church. And while there, got involved in the Sunday School Association on the board of directors, soon became chairman of the board and then uh, things began to grow enough so that they called me full-time in 1984. So my professional career has been a matter of just walking through the open doors in front of me and, and uh, really I've, I've never really sought for a job. I've had them thrust on me. Well, that's a good way to live, I think, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily the most lucrative way to live yeah, in, yeah. in the nonprofit sector, but it's, yeah. uh, it's a good way to go. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned uh, being overseas. Can you kind of explain to me how that all kind of came about? And... Well, we had um, we had been doing our work. I was on board by 1981 and just continuing. We had some fairly successful um, large conferences that we and a wide range of activities we were doing in Minnesota, but. Uh, we went through some challenging years in the 1990s with the rise of the internet. The nature of what we do is not quite as saleable because people could click onto as many YouTube videos as they wanted to mm -hmm. uh, if they're really motivated. Yeah. So we're kind of trying to find a way into the future. What should the nature of our organization's work be? And we got this. Uh, anonymous and unsolicited email from Nigeria. And uh, those Nigerian emails you do need to be careful of because sometimes <laughs> the, by their own admission they are the, the worldwide scammers, you know. <laughs> yeah. But the word came to us is that we've seen your website on what you're doing in America and we'd love for you to come over and help us start a training network here in Africa as well. And I said, well, I don't know you from Adam, so uh, I don't know if I can trust you or not. Tell you what, if you send me uh, money for a round-trip airfare, I'll come and do an exploratory trip and see if something can come come of it. Well, the, uh, the way it worked out is uh, there's a great delay in getting any money. Eventually, it did have some money sent to me, but it was in the form of seven $100 bills sealed in a booklet sent through the mail, <laughs> which is not the 
most secure way to go. Yeah, know? yeah. At one point I asked our leader over there, did it ever occur to you to use a Western Union transfer to send that money in? He said, well, yes, but that would have cost me some money. <laughs> and of course it could have cost him $700 if that piece of mail hadn't gotten to me. Yeah. But uh, in the long run that did come through and it was in the spring of 2003 that we took our first trip over and uh, that that m amount of money wasn't enough for a round trip airfare, but uh, about half of what I needed. Mm -hmm. But we we tried it out. We discovered just how sincere these guys were over there, and really what kind of sacrifice it took for them to scrape the seven hundred dollars together too. Mm -hmm. So we're almost a little bit ashamed uh, of of asking them for yeah. it. But in the end. Um, we got a foothold or a toehold in the uh, on the continent back in 2003, and just added more regions within Nigeria and then eight other countries too across both West Africa and East Africa, and we have been going usually pre-COVID uh, twice a year to do three to four weeks of travel and try to cover at least uh, once all those nine countries during the year. So we, we do two to three day training conferences over there with pastors and church leaders and try to bring literature and Bibles and study Bibles, uh, tools that pastors can't afford to buy uh, on that side, bring those with us. And they've established uh, many local um, chapters of our organization and they do fly it under the banner Minnesota Church Ministries Association, even on the continent of Africa. That's pretty cool. So we've got literally hundreds of leaders that are following us on that side right now. Mm, that's really cool. Um, would you kind of go over um, kind of how you felt before kind of doing that with, as regard to um, kind of being having interpersonal relationships with black or African-American. Yeah, um, that was an interesting dynamic because before I went to Africa, mm -hmm. I probably had only one meaningful friendship with a, a black-skinned person, and, and that wasn't even an African-American. It, it was a Ghanaian guy who was in our church, and he was a good friend, uh, but even with him, I, I had you know, kind of walked on eggshells uh, because I didn't know for sure what cultural things I might be be aggressing or, or violating. Um, so anyway, this was the first time in my life in that first two-week trip that we took where I was the only white guy in a sea of black people. <laughs> and it was like there was an emotional and intellectual and spiritual switch that flipped in my head so that uh, when I got back, I had this new openness of heart to anybody of color. And uh, to the point now, I will gravitate toward the black guy in the room and, uh, and engage them. Uh, and uh, I find people of other ethnicities very interesting. And, and you know, and we should. I mean, yeah. they're all created in the image of God, just like we are. but. Um, I've got um, so many black friends today that probably have more black friends than white friends. And as a percentage of those I hang out with, 
there are probably more black people than white people, both yeah. African immigrants as well as African Americans. Um, and that's been a great, great enrichment for me. And I think uh, that's one of the one of the ways we could solve our our racial tension in in America is with we just develop grassroots friendships one with another. Did you know, Bruce, that according to statistics, seventy-five uh, percent of all white Americans don't have a single black friend, and uh, that obviously has an impact on how we relate to one another. Yeah. And so my challenge is to all my white friends is just reach across any racial barriers and at least establish uh, a meaningful friendship with with somebody who's of another ethnicity. Now, why do you think uh, that is the reason for that number? Do you think uh, that white people are a little bit scared to, to kind of... Yeah, well, they, they are scared, and why wouldn't they be scared? The uh, <laughs> You know, in... In the most recent history here, um, the racial tensions have been ratcheted up so much mm-hmm. that white people are afraid to say anything uh, for fear that they're going to be labeled racist or say something stupid, embarrass themselves or other people, and so they tend to hang back and uh, stay in their own little cloisters and and uh, the black community is similar. I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, we're still largely segregated in mm-hmm. in America, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But um, the efforts we could be making to reach out and and uh, touch somebody, show that you show genuine interest in them, and uh, treat them as a as a valued human being, uh, have have a conversation, just sit down as friend to friend across the table and, and hear the other person's story. Uh, not enough of that's happening. And I, I think both blacks and whites and browns <laughs> of, of whatever stripe need to all make an effort in that regard. But I think white people in particular, because they are in the majority, um, should just make that effort. I think walls would... Uh, come down all over the place if there were just some natural relationships. As we say in Africa, can you say amen to that? Amen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is uh, really interesting because uh, I feel like I have definitely have seen that in my past of just people kind of being segregated and not really willing to make that effort to communicate with somebody just because of their color or their race, you know, because mm-hmm. they don't really understand exactly where they come from. So I feel like if they did kind of hear a little bit more about them, they'd be more inclined to be a little bit more friendly to them. And... Mm-hmm. No, it's it's true. And it's um, once you sit down across the table and start talking, you you recognize that most people have the same goals and aspirations and dreams as as other people do. Mm-hmm. They want to have some measure of success financially. They want to be able to raise their families successfully and see their kids do better than they do, and and uh, all those things are, uh, are are part of the mix. And you realize we're all part of a human family and. That's really what I think Martin Luther King was talking about, uh, to come to a, a colorblind society. That word colorblind is not popular in, in many quarters today, but 
really that's what it's got to be when everybody is is approached and met on an equal footing and you really truly believe from the heart that they are equal before God and should be equal before one another as valued human beings. So how have uh, some of your your beliefs guided some of your decision making throughout your life and well well, that's kind of a wide question. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, my Christian beliefs have guided um, ultimately everything I, I do consciously in my adult life. You know, the, um, the bottom line for Christians is that they are part of the church which has its main goal of reaching out to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to reach people, to bring people to faith in Jesus, and then help them to grow to be more like him uh, in spirit as well as behavior and character. And so um, I've adopted a personal philosophy uh, of, of whispering a prayer every day. Uh, God help me by everything I do and say today, move myself and everybody I touch closer to Jesus. Um, that's a personal philosophy so that um, I just want to open up doors of communication. And that doesn't mean I'm a flame-throwing evangelist who's beating people over the head with the Bible <laughs> yeah. all the time. Uh, but uh, And you know that even in our own relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've told Bruce that he's one of the nicest guys I've met in my life, and we really have a strong friendship. But we've uh, we've had many good conversations, but it's not always on the footing of preaching at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not how I approach people. And I don't think any of us should really approach people that way. But again, to believe that everybody you meet has got value and uh, you should be aiming to nudge them toward faith and growth and help them become all that they can be um, in relationship to them. Mm-hmm. And so that that's what's driven me philosophically. And uh, I, I, I just believe people are better off with a life of faith and a connection with God. Um, I think that's true even for my atheist friends who may not be responding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but even with the atheist friend who doesn't respond, um, they still deserve to be treated as a human being with value, and and they have uh, they have a lot that I can learn from. In fact, I I've tangled in conversation with some that have been very antagonistic that I've learned a lot from. Uh, so they still they have value for me. Mm. It's not that I might want to spend a whole weekend with them somewhere. Yeah. yeah. But that's just uh, my belief in the the value of every human being drives how I relate to everybody I meet on the street and uh, those that I meet professionally and those that I aim to influence. Hmm. Um, how would you define uh, faith? Um, well, the scripture says that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And um, faith in God, 
is something which, you know, some people will say, well, I'm not going to believe in God unless you can absolutely prove that God exists. And, uh, well, absolute proof is probably not possible. But, you know, faith is something that we exercise every day um, based on the best possible hunches we've got. We walk up to a light switch and we have faith that when we flip that switch, the light's going to turn on. Mm. And it will, unless the bulb's burned out or uh, some uh, switch in your, in your, uh, has tripped in, in the breaker box or if the public power has gone down. Yeah. Uh, in Nigeria, it's very possible there will be no power. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's your first explanation. But um, we, we trust things. You sit down on a chair. Uh, you trust that's going to hold up and not crumble under you. Uh, oftentimes, because you have sat on that chair before and you know it's, it's held your weight. Yeah. Uh, but it's not an absolute surety. In fact, uh, I remember famous story out of our our family is when my grandmother who was a bit buxom uh one night at a a special dinner where they're trying to impress my father who had just uh, got into a relationship with my mom uh, pulled up to the the table having set all the food on the table sat in the chair and it collapsed under her and she collapsed in a heap on the floor. It didn't make a great impression uh, <laughs> initially on my dad, but uh, she was trusting that chair, uh, and it just didn't happen. She didn't have all of the information there to prove one way or the other that it, it would hold her weight. Yeah. But generally speaking, we, we amass all the information and data possible and then we make a decision mm. and we have faith that we made the de- right decision um, now Bruce you've just uh, gotten engaged to be married that's right uh, to beautiful Allie and you're a sharp couple um, and I'm glad I know you at this stage in your life but you know what there's no absolute guarantees uh, about what your future is going to be. I am mm-hmm. trusting that when you both say I do and, and vow your faithfulness to each other, that's going to be the kind of vow that you are going to be able to have, have great confidence that both of you will keep. But you never know. But what are you making that? What are you basing it on? It's all of the information you have, and you have developed enough trust in a relationship. Uh, that you have faith in one another, uh, not because you know everything there is to know about the other person, but uh, there's enough that you can you can trust that that person has the character you think they have. Mm. Can you say amen to that? Amen. So um, when it comes to God, we don't have absolute proofs uh, of God. However, if you read the scripture, uh, there's indication from a number of levels. The, the creation itself, all of nature, uh, calls out with the idea that uh, there's got to be a mind behind this. There's got to be a designer behind all the design we see in nature. Uh, everything that works together 
the sun, moon, and stars, and all the planets. Uh, this could not have happened simply by chance. And uh, there's a sense that, that there is a mind behind all of that. Mm. And it doesn't take, it's not an illogical conclusion to come to, to put faith and trust that there is a God. It's not anti-scientific. In fact, it's as scientific as science can be because all science does is amass as much data and information as possible and comes up with a conclusion or a hypothesis that is proven as best they can. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've, we've seen even in this COVID season, certain hypotheses people thought were true initially shift with uh, new data and new understanding. So faith is, is a, a dimension of our lives every day of our lives. It happens in our interpersonal relationships. It happens in the physical world. Hmm. Certainly, it's not illogical for it to happen in the spiritual world, too. Very interesting. I've never really have kind of thought of it like that, how you are practicing it every day with those little things. Yeah. With, but, yeah, very interesting. You know what? You know what I have come to have faith in you about? What's that? I know when we set an appointment to get together, you are always there. That's you, right. You have never missed. And that's the kind of trustworthiness. Someday you're going to be 20 minutes late, and I know there's something radically wrong uh, because that's just not your intention. Yeah. But, but that's uh, the kind of reliability in so many different areas. We have faith in people based on their track record and what we have known them to be. Mm. And for those who have trust in God, who are praying to God or trusting in God for what they need uh, in terms of money and finances and relationship and whatever, uh, walking with God, you find him to be trustworthy so your faith is bolstered. And even though you haven't seen God face to face, you... You trust him because what you, how you see him active in the world and, mm. and even in your relationships. Very interesting. Now, this question is kind of almost the opposite of that. Um, have you ever had any times of uh, self-doubt at all? Uh, well, you've known me to be a pretty confident guy, right? Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, well, you know... Especially in younger years, I probably ran into some low points in my educational experience where I had failed in one or another thing. I know there was a special study program that I thought I was going to be a part of in my college experience. It was kind of an elite group that was being selected from the student body. And one of the professors kind of assured me that I was a shoe-in. The guy was wrong. I, <laughs> I didn't get uh, that appointment. And that shook my confidence for a while because I thought, thought I was being, being groomed for that and being celebrated for who I was. And then that was just taken away from me. Um, but I got over that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fairly, fairly resilient. Um, but 
One thing I will say, I am grateful for all of the affirmation and encouragement I have gotten from parents, from teachers, from coaches, from uh, friends uh, all of my life. I've been very blessed that way. And so I've had a perhaps greater degree of confidence than, than some others have experienced. Hmm. All right. Um, what's the importance to you of intergenerational relationships? Well, you know the answer to that. <laughs> no, it's one of the passions of my life. Um, I think our whole society has become terribly stratified along age lines and uh, to the point where it, it's tough to find meaningful relationships between people my age and people your age. Mm -hmm. Now, I got you by 40 years. Can you believe that? That's... That's it's uh, a little mind blowing. Yeah, but uh, I have learned so much from you, and uh, just the fact that you're willing to hang out with me is great encouragement to me. But those kinds of things sometimes naturally happen between uh, parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles and, and us, and uh, probably happened more in the old days in an agrarian economy when people were we're uh, doing harvesting together and barn raisings and whatever where the community really all ages hung together and and did things together mm -hmm. but uh, and now in a more industrial industrialized and uh, urbanized setting we just don't have those kinds of times sitting around the campfire chewing the fat you know mm -hmm. on occasion you might go to the local bar and run into somebody but Oftentimes, that's even age stratified, where young people are in one spot and older people in, in another, and they don't mix. So I think it's a very great need. In fact, I was just chatting with uh, friends in Nigeria online yesterday on this very subject, mm -hmm. and uh, they were commenting that, you know, that's a, that's a tough, tough project on the side of the ocean. Uh, the gap between older and younger is significant enough that it's, especially when it comes to church leaders, they, they tend to suppress young people rather than embrace them. Um, but some of them said it's not impossible and it's worth working on. But, uh, you know, we're in a culture right now where youth is uh, lionized, it's celebrated, um, you know, if, I, if you and I were to walk out of a building together, side by side, some people say, who's that old guy with that, uh, that handsome hunk? Uh, <laughs> man, he looks like he's at the beginning of his career. He's got great promise. This guy's got one foot in the grave already, <laughs> and the other one on a banana peel. Yeah. Uh, the judgment always is in favor of, of youth, and uh, uh, we gotta do something to bridge those gaps. Hmm. Uh, and I think it, it takes guys my age to, to reach out, because younger people Younger people, number one, sometimes think of us guys who are older as kind of cute, quaint people who, uh, <laughs> you know, 
they they might have been something back in the day, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you know their ship has sailed, and uh, and uh, and to some extent that may be true for some people, but um, they also may just be afraid. How do I approach an older person and, and relate in any meaningful way? Similarly, old people think there is a far greater generation gap than than there really is. Mm. Because if you actually engage somebody in conversation, even about something superficial, I oftentimes uh, compliment black guys on their dreadlocks, and uh, especially when they're really good-looking dreadlocks. (laughs) And uh, it's amazing. Dreadlocks, tattoos, beards, uh, those things that people have really paid attention to and tried to groom, uh, those are very important to people, and if you show them enough uh, respect, just based on some of those superficial things, mm-hmm. you end up having a lot deeper conversation with them as well. Interesting. So I have um, I've been wearing a beard ever since January first, nineteen eighty one, and uh, so I often comment on people's beards and. I just did that today when yeah. I was uh, with you. I've commented on your beard, too. It's not quite grown out like no, it should be. No, yeah, i, I got to shave it for work. i got to look but, nice and clean. But but anyway, I'll say, uh, you know, someday it can be pure white like mine. And, yeah. and this one guy said, yeah, well, it's a sign of wisdom, isn't it, when you, when you got the... And I said, well, it can be, but I've known some guys with white hair who are absolute fools. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, anyway, that opens up a conversation, and and uh, so I'm open to striking up friendship with anybody I meet. And uh, you know, some people think it's strange and mm. weird, but I don't care. I think, uh, and it's not that you have to have dozens and dozens of these kinds of connections. I do have dozens and dozens, and it's very meaningful to me. But if every older person even went out of their way to find one other person, either in their family system or in their church or their community or someone they see regularly at the local caribou shop uh, and just have a decent conversation with them and establish some kind of connection, it would be a great thing for both the older and the younger. And uh, I'm going to do what I can to foster that kind of thing through the work of local churches. It's one of the great weaknesses of churches. There are some churches that are dying out right now uh, because they're largely older people, and those older people have never connected with the younger generation meaningfully. And I think that could be done in just small grassroots ways that could keep those fellowships uh, still thriving and even growing. Mm. But uh, older people need to kind of be trained on how to approach younger ones and and what is appreciated by them the uh, positive things you can point out about them as you're getting to know them and those kinds of things naturally warm up a friendship um, between any two people definitely uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to add to that is I I think it's uh, important that someone does have this kind of relationship just because um, I know for me with you, I'm able to talk about some things that I wouldn't really be able to talk to with about like with my dad or you know a, a family member older. I, you know, it's 
it's a lot easier to kind of connect mm-hmm. with you on those things and kind of get your advice or just kind of be able to tell you kind of yeah. what's going on in my mind without and that's, having that touches my heart uh, it really is valuable to me and to have that kind of connection is is so meaningful i remember um one of my one of my mentors um Lowell Carlson was his name. I met him when he was 67 years old, and I was just 23. And he walked with me for 30 years in a friendship where we had the same kind of relationship where uh, it was just a wonderful connection. And yet he made that part of the pattern of his life. And at one point, he had taken me under his wing along with the pastor of our church and then another guy who was a hospital chaplain, part of our church. And um, it was at the same time he was spending time with each of us three that his wife of 51 years passed away. And he told me, you know, Tim, I uh, come to church and my wife's not there with me. Uh, most of my friends are dead or move someplace else and uh, there's not a reason in the world I shouldn't be a, a thousand miles away from this place someplace warmer than Minnesota except for you three guys you give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning and my connection with you is has given my life meaning and that's quite a word and uh, and that's what I find in my own life mm. because I've got Bruce in my life I've got I've got some meaning Along with a few others, too. Yeah. <laughs> but it really is meaningful, and to be able to talk at a deep level is a, is is a blessing that goes both ways. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. definitely appreciate that, and I feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, out of all the places you've gone overseas, which has been your uh, favorite place to go to? Well, you know. Probably the place I like staying at the most is in uh, Monrovia, Liberia, at the ELWA compound, right on the ocean. They've got a guest mm. house that's just right across, right across from the ocean, and uh, beautiful beach there. Uh, it's it's a wonderful place. Um, in terms of other. Africa locations, that's where I spend most of my time overseas. Um, there are more than one spot, or there is more than one spot in um, in Nigeria that I've come to love because I love the people that are there. Uh, Africa, I have not been to a place in Africa that is so overwhelmingly wonderful in terms of environment. <laughs> uh, there's so many downsides of the infrastructure that are bothering because the electricity can go out and uh, at a drop of a hat and uh, you can lose all comfort if you don't have air conditioning and mm. and uh, got to be careful you got the right kind of bottled water or you might uh, suffer some stomach trouble and all the rest. But it's the, the people that make the, the place beautiful. So... I um I, I like something about all the countries I've been in. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I think I got one more question for you. Um for anyone listening today, what's something you would want them to take away from this? Uh I think 
bottom line is that uh, relationships are what life is all about. Uh, and not, not to be satisfied with just uh, one or two or three connections in life. Uh, you as a human being have a lot to offer that will benefit and bless and encourage and build up uh, everyone you meet. Have the confidence enough to know that you've got something in yourself that is worth, worthy of sharing uh, with other people. Um, I was told back in college, you know, it's impossible to have more than six or seven meaningful relationships at any one time. And I kind of bought that from a psychological standpoint that you just can't handle dozens and dozens of people on, on an intimate basis. And that's, that's probably true. You don't, have, you don't have the mental or emotional energy to handle all that. But I think it's far more than five or six. And there's probably room for one more. Uh, sometimes it doesn't even have to be an ongoing, in-depth uh, series of conversations like you and I have. But just even in passing or, or very very infrequent connection with someone can still be a great help. And we have those kinds of friends that come and go through our lives, but uh, we can take advantage of the moments we have with them and, and it can be very meaningful. So don't cut people out of your life. It's what will keep you going uh, well into your 90s. And with modern medicine, probably well over 100. Hopefully, hopefully. In, in good health. But uh, people are what it's all about. That's awesome. I like that. Well, I really appreciate you taking your time today and meeting with me and you know sharing some of your experiences. I think uh, the people listening will have a lot to take away from yeah. us. And one day you'll, you'll have uh, a video podcast where people will be able to see that million-dollar smile of yours. Hopefully. Yeah. One day. <laughs> we'll get there. But thanks, thanks for inviting me in. I, I really appreciate what you delved into here, and I'm uh, happy to come back and expand on anything in the future. Definitely. I think we'll have you back. Thank you. Yeah.